If you ever found yourself in a situation where in that moment you did not recognize the opportunity or the power or the privilege that you had. Often it is with regret that we look back on these moments later and we realize what opportunity we had. And we wish that we would have taken advantage of it. One of the greatest regrets of my life is an opportunity that I did not take advantage of. In fact, not only did I miss taking advantage of it, I completely squandered it. One of the privileges of growing up around the campus of Bob Jones University was the opportunity to attend elementary school through college, four years of college, for free. My mother taught there, and one of the benefits for faculty and staff and their families was that their kids had the opportunity to attend for free. Not forever, but for, through four years of college. I, being young and not too wise, did not realize how great of a privilege that was. As I got to college age, I didn't necessarily want to go to school. I wanted to go because I was excited to play soccer, I was excited to play basketball, I was excited to be involved in the social life of college, but I, I, I wasn't necessarily thrilled about the academics. I was never the smartest person in the room. So as I got started, I had the wrong motives to begin with. I wanted to play sports, and very quickly, my grades dipped below the level where I could play sports. And so as my ability to play sports was taken away, my desire to be there at all disappeared. It wasn't too long into my first few years of college before I started talking to my parents about dropping out. You see, as I entered college, I didn't know what I wanted to do to begin with. I had a general plan. My dad runs a commercial cleaning business. My plan was I will start my own business and then I'll take over my dad's business and I'll combine them. I had no vision or idea or desire of being in the ministry at the time. My parents, praise the Lord, were wiser than I was and they encouraged me, very strongly encouraged me, to stay in school. We're not going to let you drop. You have four free years of college. Take advantage of it. I saw those four free years not as a, something to take advantage of. I saw them as something to just grit my teeth and get through. And so I did, and I got through, and in the four years, I ended up getting something for it. I ended up, after four years, getting an associate's degree. So I got something for it, but in reality, I completely wasted four free years of college. After I graduated, I started out on my plan. I tried to start my business. Unfortunately, in 2012, the economy was not doing very well at all. And one of the first things that people cut when they start trying to save money on business is the service industry. So trying to start a building maintenance business was not going very well at all. In fact, I struggled to get even one account in all that time. I couldn't get anything. And my dad's business was struggling, so he couldn't give me anything. He couldn't help me out. He didn't have work for me. Turns out that my plan was not working out. And praise the Lord, he opened up an opportunity for Chris and I to go to a ministry in Indianapolis, and then we ended up here a few years later in Altoona, at Altoona Regular Baptist Church. 
Moving here, God provided an opportunity for me to go to faith and to finish my undergrad degree that I had wasted the opportunity earlier. To continue to grow and to learn. But my life would have been so much easier if I would have just realized the opportunity that was in front of me. As a 19-year-old, as a freshman at Bob Jones University with four free years of school in front of me, if I could have just understood what I had, my life would have been so much easier. Praise the Lord for how he worked in my life despite my sin, despite my foolishness. I look back on those years with a lot of regret, but at the same time I rejoice because God used those in my life. I learned from those mistakes. But if only I had understood what was right in front of me. As we come to John 14, 1-14 this morning, we find the disciples who similarly have no idea of the privilege that they have the amazing opportunity to sit and to learn at the feet of Jesus, the Son of God. At this point, they've been sitting under the ministry of Jesus for three years. And yet we see in this passage that there is so much that they have missed, so many opportunities that they have wasted. Praise the Lord that even a squandered opportunity is not necessarily a wasted opportunity in the hands of God. Missed opportunities can be used by the Lord for our good as we come to realize our sin and to grow in it and to grow through it. So this morning we're going to follow along as Jesus opened the disciples' eyes to the privilege that they have and the privilege that we have to know Jesus Christ. John 14, 1-14, as we work our way through this passage, there's four sections that we're going to see. I don't have a fancy outline with um, four alliterated points. But what we see is, we'll begin with a comforting truth. Then we'll see an objection and an answer. Then we'll see another objection and another answer. And then we'll close with another comforting truth. Comforting truth, an objection and an answer. Objection two and an answer. And then another comforting truth. First thing we see here in verses 1 to 4 is a comforting truth. As we come to John 14, 1, we find more troubled hearts. Let not your heart be troubled. I say more troubled hearts because you'll remember last week as we studied John 13, 21 to 38, that in John 13, 21, begins by telling us that Jesus is troubled in spirit. In John 13, 21, Jesus has just, he's in the middle of unfolding to his disciples the reality that one of them will betray him. His crucifixion, his betrayal is merely hours away and it weighs heavy on his heart. His heart, is, his spirit is troubled. And as we come to John 14, it is the disciples now who are troubled. What is it that is troubling the disciples? Well, if you remember from last week, as we come into this passage, into John 14, Jesus has just told his disciples, one of you will betray me. He's told his disciples, I am going away. I am leaving. Not only that, but surprisingly, he rebukes Peter in front of everyone and says, Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. All of this is weighing on the disciples. 
And their heart is troubled. What is going on? Jesus is leaving. One of us will betray him. Peter himself is going to deny him. What is going on? What I love about this passage is what it reveals to us about the heart of Christ. Because as Judas is going away, as he's making arrangements for Jesus' betrayal, as Jesus is hours from the cross, as his own spirit is troubled, Jesus takes the time to comfort his troubled disciples. Here we find the Savior with a troubled heart himself, selflessly and lovingly consoling his disciples in the midst of their confusion and their fear. This passage powerfully illustrates John 13, 1, at the beginning of this whole section that goes through John 16, or really John 17. And John 13, 1 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's what we see in this passage. Here we see Jesus loving his own to the end, even with his own troubled heart. Many days as I get dressed and I get ready to walk over to the office, my kids will ask me as I'm getting dressed, Dad, why do you have to go to work? Can't you stay and play with us? Why do you have to go? They don't understand that I must go to work every day because the Lord has called me. He's given me a job. He's given me a ministry. This is what I must do. I can't just stay with them and play games. They fail to realize that it is to their advantage that I go. It is to their benefit. If I don't go to my office, then there's no food. There's no house. There's no toys. It would be fun to stay and to play with you all day, but it would be fun for a very short time before it started being not fun. We need a house. We need food. It is to your advantage that I go. Likewise, the disciples, as we come to this passage this morning, they don't understand why Jesus must go. But similarly, it is to their advantage that he does. In fact, this is the idea... uh, that we see throughout John 13, 14, 15, 16, even into his prayer in John 17. The underlying tension, what the disciples are struggling with through all these chapters, is the reality that Jesus must leave them. And yet the idea conveyed in all of this is that Jesus is not abandoning them. It is to your advantage that I go. And yet the disciples are still struggling with this. I think we tend to underestimate how surprising it was to the disciples. We see the whole story, right? We know the end of John. We know what's going to happen. We know even into Acts and into the epistles and even into Revelation. We know what is going on. We have the big picture. They don't. This is all unfolding right in front of them. Their dreams, their plans are being changed. As Jesus says, I'm leaving. This was a surprising revelation to the disciples. The revelation that Jesus must leave them. They're completely caught off guard. They are overwhelmed by the reality of a future without Jesus physically in their midst. Throughout this entire farewell discourse, covering chapters 13 through 16, even into 17, the main subject that is covered is the fact that Jesus is leaving. 
And he is comforting his disciples. He is telling them, it is to your advantage that I go. He's comforting their troubled hearts. He's assuring them this is what is best. It begins here in John 14, 1, calling them to trust him. Let not your hearts be troubled. I know this is troubling. I know this is overwhelming. But don't be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? What hope is there for our troubled hearts? We are overwhelmed. We are afraid. If you have a new King James Bible, it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Other translations might state that more as uh, an imperative, believe in God. Believe in me. I think given the context, it is best to understand this passage as an imperative. Believe in God, rather than a statement, you believe in God. In the original language, it can go either way. It can be understood rightly either way. But the difference comes in the implication. If it is merely a statement, then Jesus seems here to be implying to be calling their faith into question. I know that you believe in God, but do you believe in me? Will you believe in me? That doesn't seem to fit the context of Jesus comforting them. As an imperative, it is a comforting call to faith in the midst of trial. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. Your heart is troubled and the answer is to believe. To remain steadfast in your faith. Trust God and trust me. I know you're troubled, but believe me. In John 14, 2-4, Jesus moves on to comfort them and to confront the very thing that is troubling. He's called them to faith and now he tells them where he is going and why, they must, why he must go. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God or, or believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, that you may be also. And Jesus tells them, this is where I'm going. This is why I must go. There's three comforting facts for the disciples' troubled hearts that we find in these verses. First, he tells them where he is going. I'm going to my father's house. And in my father's house, in this house, there are, there are many mansions. Or we could think many apartments. There is an abundance of room. I'm going to my father's house, and in my father's house there is plenty of room. I'm going to where my father abides, to where he lives. Obviously, what is in view here is heaven. And there's plenty of room there. You may say, okay, that's, that's good. I'm glad that's where you're going. But how is that comforting to us? Look what he goes on to say. I am going there. There's plenty of room there. And then I'm coming back to get you and take you there. I am going to prepare a place for you. This is the reason that he is going. One of the reasons that he is going. 
and I will come back to get you. I am going to my father's house. There is plenty of room. And I am going to prepare a place for you. Even as I go away from you, I will be working for you. And then I will come back and I will get you a promise of return. What a comforting truth. What a comforting passage. I am leaving. And I know you're overwhelmed, but this is where I'm going. This is why I'm going. And I am coming back for you. Here in John 14, 2-3, it introduces the glorious truth of the rapture of the church. A truth that is later expounded upon in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-54, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, even as we read this morning. And you may remember the last verse of that passage that we read this morning. What does it say? Therefore, comfort one another. The truth of the rapture that Christ is coming back for His church is a comforting truth. It comforted the disciples here in John 14 and it comforts us to this day. The rapture is the promised return of Christ for His church prior to the tribulation. You may say, well, how, how, how does this talk about the rapture? Really, the rapture is the only event that fits Jesus' promise to his disciples here in John 14. Jesus here refers to a time when he will come back for his own. His coming is connected to, but is separate from his second coming. Because at the second coming, we know that Jesus will come and he will stay. He will come to the earth, he will set up his kingdom, and he will reign from the earth. What we find here in John 14, 2-3 is a promise to come and to take. I will come and then I will take you to my Father's house where there are many mansions, where there is plenty of room. And the truth of the rapture is meant to bring comfort, to console their troubled hearts. Jesus has not forgotten them and he will not forget them. He has not abandoned them and he has not abandoned his church. He is going to prepare a place for them and he is preparing a place for us. And he is coming back to take us with him. Even so, come Lord Jesus. He comforts his disciples with the promise to return for them. In verses 5 to 7, we see then objection 1 and answer. You may say, well, what is there to object to in that? That's, that's awesome. I'm looking for what is there to object to? Well, in John 14, 4, Jesus adds this thought, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Not only am I going for your benefit, but you know where I am going, and you know the way. This is where the objection comes. And this time there's Thomas who speaks up, not Peter. I find that interesting. I find that all throughout chapter 14 and 15, Peter doesn't show up. It's almost as if when, when Jesus confronts him, when he rebukes him, when he says, you will deny me, Peter is sitting there. He's just dumbfounded. His usual boldness is taken away, and as he sits there, these other disciples are speaking up. 
So here we have Thomas, and like Peter, Thomas questions Jesus. Thomas said to him, verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? <laughs> how can we know the way? You must be mistaken. You, you, we have no idea where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? How could Thomas miss this? Jesus just told him where he's going. You do know where I'm going, Thomas. If you'd been paying any attention to me at all, if you'd been listening to me at all, I literally just told you I'm going to the Father. And you know the way simply by knowing me. This leads to Jesus' sixth I am statement in the book of John. It's probably one of the best known. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's a remarkable statement. Father, what? Jesus, what is the way? The way to the Father is not a how, but a who. It's not found by following a, nap, by following a map. It is found by faith in the Son of God. In fact, when you look at Jesus' whole statement... Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. A lot of times when we read that, we tend to focus on that first one, right? I am the way. He's the only way. There's one way. But there's more to what he says here than I am just the way. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He's not just the only way to the Father. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. He's the way to the Father. He is the truth about the Father. And He is eternal life from the Father. He goes on to stress that He is the only way. John MacArthur here notes that the exclusiveness as Jesus as the only way is emphatic. There is no question to what Jesus is saying here. There is no way besides Jesus. There is no truth outside of Jesus. There is no life apart from Jesus. Anybody that preaches that the gospel of Jesus Christ is only one way of many ways to the Father is not preaching the gospel. All religions do not lead to the same place. In fact, most religions lead straight to hell. There is one way, and it is through Jesus Christ. No one begins the Christian life apart from Jesus. No one grows in the Christian life apart from Jesus Christ. And no one will be glorified apart from Jesus Christ. You must be saved in Christ. You must be sanctified in Christ. And you will be glorified in Christ and in Christ alone. In the imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis comments on this passage with this statement. He says, Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the invi inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life, 
I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Brothers and sisters, it is important that you understand this this morning. There is no way to eternal life through the law. The law condemns. There is no way to eternal life through good works. Even your best works are filthy rags in the presence of a holy God. You cannot earn eternal life and you do not deserve eternal life. Jesus is the way to the Father. He's the way to eternal life. He is the only way. And he is the only way that we need. You can add nothing to what Jesus has done. You need only accept what Jesus has done and live. And how freeing is the reality of John 14, 6. How comforting this must have been to the disciples. Jesus is not abandoning them. He is going to prepare a place for them and he will return for them. Jesus is all that they need. You know the way because you know me. I'm all that you need. The disciples don't have some heavy burden, something they have to do to get here. They simply have to trust. You and I simply have to trust. Following the glorious truth of John 14, 6, John 14, 7 seems to come out of left field. Jesus goes from saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. To verse 7, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Seems here to indicate that there has been some disconnect with the disciples. They don't know Jesus as well as they think they do. The disciples believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. In fact, Peter had, had confessed that so boldly and gloriously at Caesarea Philippi. John 13, 10 to 11, and verse 18 clearly indicates that the disciples were true believers. But they have failed to grasp what it really means that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They have failed to grasp what is right in front of them. Jesus is more than just an agent of the Father. He is of one essence with the Father. In Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. As Colossians 2 tells us. And the implication here is simple. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And the connection between John 14, 6 and John 14, 7 is this. You, how can you get from Jesus saying, I am the way, to saying, you guys don't really know me. What is the connection? It is this. Not only is Jesus the way to the Father and to eternal life in the future, he's the way to know and to fellowship with the Father in the present. There is nothing more that they need. Jesus is everything. Jesus is preeminent. Trust me and me alone. I am all you need for the future and I am all you need for the present. I am everything. This leads to another objection as we see in verses 8 to 11. In John 14, 8, it is Philip now who speaks up. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. 
In fact, we see the very confusion that Jesus has just talked about in verse 7 in Philip's answer. Almost as you read this, you're shaking your head. What are you thinking, Philip? Did you not just hear what Jesus said? How did you miss this? Lord, show us the Father. Philip wants more. Show us the Father now. If you are the way to the Father, let us see him. Let us have something to hold on to, something to hold us over, something to give us strength, something to give us assurance. Philip's request is similar to Moses' request in Exodus 33, 18. In Exodus 33, Moses and the children of Israel are facing a similar situation, the reality of God leaving them. They have sinned, and God has said, I I will get you to where you're going, but I'll have an angel lead you. I'm not going to go with you because you are a stubborn people. They're facing the reality of continuing their journey through the wilderness without God because of their sin, and Moses pleads with God to go with them, not to abandon them. God heeds Moses' cry. I will go because because of you. Because you are faithful. And so Moses in this moment, he asked the Lord, show me your glory. And you have the glorious passage as God passes by and Moses gets a hint of the glory of God from the back. Philip wants a glimpse of God like Moses had. A hint, something to give him encouragement, something to hold on to. But Philip and the disciples have missed the whole point. They have missed what Jesus has just said. How have they been with him for three years and not understood this? They've completely missed what Jesus has continually said. In John 5, verses 18 to 29, he says it very clearly. In John 12, 45 to 50, he says it again very clearly. I and the Father are one. Philip is begging for a hint of God fails to realize that he has spent the last three years in the presence of God incarnate in Jesus Christ. Our minds are boggled as we read this. How had he missed this? Not only was it just implied very clearly in what Jesus had said, he had said this directly several times on multiple occasions. This is who I am. Jesus responds with fairly strong rebuke. Rightfully so. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? You have failed to recognize who I am and all that that means? You have failed to really know me. Here in John 14, 9, Jesus plainly states the truth of John 14, 7. Apparently what he said in John 14, 7 wasn't enough. And so he clearly says it. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Is that slow enough for you, Philip? Are you understanding this? He who has seen me has seen the Father. It's remarkable and sad and eye-opening that disciples have somehow missed this until now.
I say it is eye-opening because we must ask ourselves if the disciples can miss such an obvious truth after living with Jesus for three years, what might we be missing? What glorious truth do we read over time and time again? Truths that we sing about and talk about and yet somehow fail to grasp. Somehow we fail to dive deeper than a surface level. How often do we settle for a pithy statement that we can throw up on our Facebook in order to get likes and we fail to think fully and to drink deeply from the depths of the Word of God? What have we missed because we aren't listening, because we aren't paying attention? The problem is not that Jesus has not been clear. The problem is that the disciples have not listened. The problem is not, the not that the word of God is not clear. The problem is that we do not listen. May God give us eyes to see and ears to hear and humble hearts to submit to the word of God. verse 10, Jesus dives more deeply into this. He dives into the theology of the Trinity to make sure that they understand what he is saying, who he is. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Here we see the reality that the Father and the Son are distinct and yet they are entirely the same. Three persons, one essence. All of the Father is in Jesus, and all of Jesus is in the Father. In fact, he goes on to, to explain what this means then. What does this look like? They, they obviously, we can't, nobody can wrap their minds about what Jesus has just said. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. We will never fully understand that. The disciples will not fully understand that. But what does that mean? Well, it means this, that the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. What this means is that when Jesus speaks, it is as if the Father is speaking. When he works, it is as if the Father is working. The Father and the Son are in perfect harmony. It means that everything Jesus does, Jesus cannot and does not ever work or speak independently of the Father. Don't you realize, Philip, that in me you have seen and known the Father? You want to see the Father? I've been with you for three years. And here in verse 11, then, we see the second imperative to believe, the first being in verse 1. Believe me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. That is something that we have to believe because it's something we'll never wrap our minds around. We have to just simply accept it to believe it. Believe me. Or else, believe me for the sake of the works themselves. It would have been a stinging rebuke. It would have grabbed their attention, pulled at their hearts. Of course, 
Of course they believe Jesus. And the works just confirm the very thing that they should have known, should have seen. As you come to John 14, 12 to 14, then you have the final comforting truth. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 12 to 14, Jesus returns to the comforting truths of John 14, 1 to 4. They've asked these questions. They've thrown out these objections. Jesus has answered it. And now he returns to console their troubled hearts with the promise that it is for their benefit that he goes. He who believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works because I go to my Father. Here we find several of the truths from earlier in John 14 that are reiterated, expanded upon. First, we see that Jesus is the only way. Notice that this promise is for those who believe. It's not just for anyone. It's not for those who are, are good, those who obey me. It's for those who believe. Jesus is still the only way. It is he who believes in me that will do these things. Secondly, Jesus will sustain and empower in them. They will do greater works. Not because they are greater, but because they believe in Jesus. Because he believes in me, he will do these great things. It's important to understand, too, because that might be a, a, a troubling statement. You might say, how can, how can the disciples do greater things than what Jesus has done? Jesus has done some amazing things. It's important to understand that in the book of John, the word works has a broader meaning than, than uh, just miracles. So signs, when John says signs, he's often referring to miracles. Signs are miracles. Works, when John refers to works, he's referring to the greater body of work that Jesus does, his ministry. So what is in view here is not more miraculous signs than what Jesus has done, but greater works in terms of scope. You will reach the world. Jesus' ministry was focused on one region. Their ministry will go and will reach the world, every people and tribe and tongue. You will do great things if you believe in me. I am the only way. And you will do great things because you believe me. I will empower you. I will sustain you. And again, in verse, we, we have the idea here that it is to their benefit that Jesus goes because I go to my Father. They will do these great things because Jesus goes to the Father. This will happen because I go to my Father. I must go to my Father. It is to your benefit that I go to my Father. You will do great things because I am going to the Father. Again, how comforting this would have been to the disciples. The promise here that they will accomplish great things in Jesus' name, even though Jesus will not be physically with them. How comforting and reassuring to know that you will succeed. 
If you believe in me, you will do this. And yet notice the breadth of this promise. It is to all who believes in me. He doesn't just limit it to these 11 men. Brothers and sisters, it is not just to the disciples' benefit that Jesus leave and tarry. It is to your benefit. It is to my benefit. He is not done working and he is not yet done with his church. I think we tend to assume often that the, the great works in church history are, are, are finished. The church has done their, their, their great job and we're just trying to hold on now to the end. We're just trying to, to hold on for dear life until Christ comes and takes us home. Come, Lord Jesus. But Jesus is still doing great things in the world through those who believe in him. The great things are not past. God is still doing great things. He can still do great things. He will still do great things if you will believe in him. Be encouraged. In fact, notice the direction that Jesus goes next. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. He goes to prayer. He moves to prayer. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You will do great things. And then he goes right into asking. Great things begin with bold prayers. I mean, how much more bold would our prayers be if we really believed that Jesus could do whatever we asked? How much more active would our prayer lives be if we really believed that prayer works? What does your prayer life say? Does your prayer life testify to the fact that you believe that prayer works? Or that you believe that it's not quite that important? Believe what Jesus says. Brothers and sisters, John 14, 13 to 14 is not an empty promise. We must pray bold prayers with confidence that God hears our prayers, that he can answer our prayers, and that he will accomplish his purpose and fulfill his will. He'll fulfill his promises. And yet at the same time, notice that these prayers that Jesus will answer to do great things. They are not just a blank check to fulfill your desires. It is to fulfill God's will. These are prayers that are done in my name. In fact, he repeats that twice. Whatever you ask in my name. In verse 14, if you ask anything in my name. That's not just to say in Jesus' name. It's not just a phrase that is a heart attitude that he is talking about. John MacArthur notes that this little phrase, in my, in my name, uh, means this. To ask in Jesus' name means first to seek Jesus' purpose and kingdom and not my own. Second, to ask on the merits of Jesus and not my own. Third, to ask in pursuit of his glory alone and not my own. That is why we pray in Jesus' name. We are meant to represent that with the phrase that we say at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name. But if those 
three words don't represent our heart attitude. They don't mean anything. They're just an empty phrase. As you pray, is this desire of your heart that Jesus' purpose and kingdom and not my own would be accomplished? That I am coming to God on the merits of Christ alone and not my own? And that I am asking in pursuit of His glory alone and not my own? If you come in those ways, with those desires, God can do anything. come to the end of this passage the disciples failed to take advantage of the privilege that they had to sit under the ministry of Jesus himself they failed to really stop and to listen and they missed something so obvious their failure to listen affected their ability to understand but it wasn't too late they'd failed to listen but there was still time to learn The big idea of this passage, John 14, 1-14, is the preeminence of Jesus Christ and the benefit of faith in Him. Christ is all that we have. He is the only way. And Christ is all that we need. In fact, I think it's important to note that the word believe shows up six times in these 14 verses. I would encourage you, if you're someone who marks your Bible, take a highlighter and mark All the times believe shows up in these verses. In fact, do that through the whole book of John. But in these six verses, the word in these 14 verses, the word believe shows up six times, and the word know shows up eight times. Clearly, Jesus wants us to know the truth, to believe the truth, and then to be impacted by the truth. The disciples' faith was weak, not because Jesus had failed to teach them or because they did not have access to what they needed. Their faith was weak because they failed to listen. They failed to know. Know who Jesus is. Know what he has done for you in the cross. Know the benefits that are yours by faith in Christ. Know what he has promised and find hope and find encouragement and find boldness. It's a great truth. It's an encouraging passage, but what does it mean for me? Application. Number one, belief. If you've never placed your faith in Christ alone this morning, heed the truth of this passage. Jesus is the only way. There is no other way of salvation. You are a sinner who stands before a holy God, and you deserve condemnation, and there is one way of salvation. It's in Christ alone. Won't you believe? If you have any questions about who Jesus is or about what salvation is, come to me. I would love nothing more than to sit down with you to open the word of God. I don't want to pressure you into a decision. I want to answer your questions. I want to point you to the word of God. So believe, find salvation. But also, Christian, believe and find comfort. I find it fascinating that the first thing that Jesus does in this passage as his disciples' hearts are troubled before he gives them any kind of other encouragement, he simply calls them to believe. Believe. Find comfort in faith. Secondly, be encouraged. Be encouraged to endure because Christ is all that you need because he, and he is coming again. And be encouraged to be bold 
Jesus' promise to come again for us is not just meant to comfort us, it is meant to light a fire under us. He is coming. He will come. So go and make disciples. Also, be bold because Christ is interceding for you. There's a hint of that in this passage at the end as it talks about the fact that Jesus is going to the Father and it is to your benefit. You have an advocate before the Father. So be bold. And then finally, get to work. The implication of this passage is that the one who believes in Jesus is working for Jesus and praying and active. So the question would be, what are you doing? What are you praying for? What are you doing? What are you praying for? Are you praying? Pray in Jesus' name and pray boldly and marvel at what your God will do.